When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's Bigfoot Collectors Club with Bryce, Michael, and Ivy. I know a story of high strangeness or two. <laughs> Let's do this. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to Bigfoot Collectors Club, the show where we talk to amazing guests about their personal paranormal history and share stories of high strangeness. I'm your host, Michael McMillan. With me always is your other host, Bryce Johnson, and our super producer, Riley Bray. Oh, boy, it's BCC Jet Ski Summer. All summer long, we're looking at cryptids, UFOs. And stories of high strangeness that have some kind of connection to water. I think. I mean, that's the plan, but we'll see. No, that's great. That's a good thread. We can build on that, man, for sure. (laughs) Um, I feel like water, considering it covers most of the planet, we have a lot to choose from. (laughs) Yeah, it's safe. There's always works. Yeah. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Um, the bodies are mostly water, so if you, you know, there's a person involved, it's about mm-hmm. water. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> there's water and everything, guys. <laughs> we explained um, it in the song. It's all in the song. Yeah, that's right. It's in Aquakinetic. <laughs> we laid down the rules there. Go check it out if you don't know what we're talking about. Jet ski special. Um, boys. Speaking of jet ski special and being at the lake, are you have you been back to any bodies of water yet, or are you still basking in the glow of our retreats to Shaver Lake? I did jump in a pool after work, and I uh, my I'm still basically my hair's wet, and I'm, I'm sitting in shorts recording this, so I barely made it on time. But it was so hot, and I got out of work, and I had to I had to jump in a pool. So, you know, it's, it's on on brand, and that's why I didn't uh, text Michael back because I was scrambling to be here on time, and so, uh, ran us in a great big circle trying to do the episode. Sorry about that. Sounds like someone's having a little party boy summer when you should be focusing on the podcast that we're trying to make tonight. <laughs> What? We can do both. Party we can do summer. <laughs> Riley, are you having a party boy summer? Stop Look, prioritizing. I was up at Five a.m. this morning. All right. Stop prioritizing your day. party boy summer over our jet ski summer, Riley. <laughs> You're right. You're right. You're right. Um, well, we're very excited about our expert guest this week. But before we bring him in, let's do some more banter that everybody wants to hear. <laughs> let's make um, him wait. <laughs> let's have some clubhouse keeping, guys, real quick. Hey, if you're looking. Maybe you've noticed on your favorite podcast app next to next to Bigfoot Collectors Club or under the icon, it no longer says Campfire Media. It now says Wood Elf Media. That's because BCC has joined Wood Elf Media. We're on a brand new network. We're very excited. Um, This doesn't mean anything for you guys. You're still going to get the show in the same place although campfire media is no longer in existence uh rest in peace campfire media long live wood elf 
Um, <laughs> we're still working with some of the campfire folks, and that's how this all came about. We're very excited. Uh, basically, this is a big new network that we're joining. Uh, so we hopefully are going to be reaching all new uh, audience members, if you guys are hearing us for the first time, welcome. And uh, I want to thank Campfire for the past uh, three years of the show, basically, mm-hmm. uh, for being there and supporting us and supporting the show. But for you guys, the show still works the same. We just wanted to make that announcement. We're excited to be joining Wood Elf. Also, a much more appropriate, I mean, Campfire is good for a Bigfoot uh, podcast, but Wood Elf is more fun. Oh, it's beautiful. Indeed. Sounds like we are very, very excited about this new network. Very excited. We're happy that they're having us. Yes, thank you. All right. New shirts. BCC Jet Ski Summer by James Maholland is available now in the Bigfoot Collectors Club T Public Shop. The link to our shop is in the show notes of this episode and in the link tree in our bio on Instagram at Bigfoot Collectors Club and on Twitter at Bigfoot Pod. And I hope you enjoyed last week's Patreon unlock. Coming up this week on Patreon, we'll be we will be diving into one of the funniest cryptids, and I'm not going to tell you who that is. To check out that episode and our entire backlog of episodes, go to Patreon.com/slash/BigfootCollectorsClub. Your monthly five dollar pledge not only unlocks the other side, the parallel dimension of BCC, it also supports the show, allowing production of our podcast to continue on forever uh and if you don't have five bucks uh to pledge every month you can give us a five-star salute by going to apple podcast podcasts and leaving us a (laughs) five-star review like this one from zach underscore gelfand so much fun i love this show five stars great that's all you gotta leave guys that's that's all you need to do okay enough Mm -hmm. is enough Our guest this week is one of the most well-recognized and highly sought-after investigators of UFO, paranormal, and occult phenomena in the world. He has been actively involved in the field of anomalistic, conspiratorial, occult, ufological, and paranormal research for well over three decades. And tonight, ladies and gentlemen, he's going to talk to us about water. That's right, water. Please welcome back to the show author, podcaster, producer, investigator, and paranormal renaissance man, John E.L. Tenney. Welcome back, John. Woo! Hey, everybody. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming in and talking about one of the most basic elements and its connection <laughs> to high strangeness. <laughs> well, I'm, I do love water. I try and stay hydrated. <laughs> I mean, one of the uh, most famous biblical stories is water transmogrifying into wine. And last I checked in with you, you told me you were at a haunted winery. Yeah, I just got back from a haunted winery, uh, Belvoir Winery in Liberty, Missouri. So a uh, whole weekend. That's my neck what, of the woods. Was, Sorry, I got excited. I was, I, I, that's <laughs> all right. I was right there. Uh, yeah, it's a great place. And usually once a year I go out there, if not more, and, you know, take people on ghost hunts. I, I usually get put in. There's a uh, cemetery out back. And so I usually get put in the cemetery because I smoke cigarettes. So <laughs> I build a, I build, I build a campfire and we roast marshmallows and tell ghost stories. They have you in your own uh, little smoker section um, with other like cigar, like old timey cigar smoking and pipe smoking ghosts coming through. <laughs> you know, that's the thing. We're, we're being at an old place. Like I always tell people, you know, people are always looking for trigger objects for ghosts. And the one thing that I do that really isn't common anymore that was immensely common was cigarettes. So the smoke you find is like a, a, a 
paranormal trigger or yeah absolutely there are so many times when you know it's problematic for anyone that's taking photographs because there's smoke clouds floating around everywhere <laughs> yeah <laughs> right. but at the same time if you're looking for something to trigger you know the memories and the experiences of something you know from the turn of the century up until 1980s you know, that's cigarette smoke i mean if you died mm. in the like 1950s before like the anti-smoking campaign really took hold and you get to the other side and there's no cigarettes over there you gotta be jonesing yeah for <laughs> sure i mean if you know i if any part of me persists after i lose my biological form and there's not cigarettes there i will be an angry ghost <laughs> this is actually this is an interesting idea do you think that like aspects of our personalities may be like what if only the aspect of your personality that's addicted to nicotine remains after you die do you think it's possible that like our spirits fraction fractions off into different uh parts like that i mean it's obviously a possibility but i've always thought that once if if something of me persists and then continues on in some other realm, uh, experiencing that realm, I've only ever known, as far as I know, how to experience universe and reality with eyes and a body and hands. Mm -hmm. and so there's going to be this leap where I start to experience reality or the universe or the cosmos without a biological form. So then when you take that into account, like how long will I still even be John Tenney? Like there's a... The six-year-old John Tenney is kind of alive within me, but it's dead in the sense that because of my experiences gained over the years of being alive, that six-year-old doesn't exist anymore. Right. So why would I continue to just, you know, if I die at 60, why would I just stay at 60 if I'm beginning to experience all new realms of existence? I mean, as we mm. all know, when we become men, we must murder our own little boys. <laughs> we must murder our former selves. Damn. Bury the past. <laughs> Well, I think, you know, because whether you, whether or not you guys ever, uh, we've ever talked about this, you know, I died when I was 18. So that kind yeah. of did happen to me. Oh, yeah, that's true. We have talked about it. We talked about it on the show, didn't we? That's, yeah, yes, so. we did. Yes, I remember yeah. it. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, you've possibly experienced uh, that, that other side. You know, do you think it could also be like, you know, there's this idea, I think it's called something like the, the stone tape theory, but when, when emotions are at high they can set forth sort of this triggering memory effect, uh, maybe like an addictive behavior, something like strong, like even like heroin addiction can be so strong, so emotionally charged that perhaps uh, there could be some type of lingering, angry, addictive, you know, uh, type of entity left behind. Could something like that possibly happen? Yeah, uh, that idea, that stone tape theory that you're talking about, which really became popular in the 70s because there was a BBC show actually called The Stone Tape, which explored that idea. Oh. But there was an author, researcher uh, named T.C. Lethbridge, and his idea was that he was the one who kind of really put the idea together that maybe the crystalline structure and moving water, creating a kind of electromagnetic energetic form of energy near the crystalline structures that it was somehow acting like a giant tape recorder and if you went there and had some kind of large emotional experience it would imprint onto that mm. area 
Well, then over the years, as people would go to those locations, they'd experience, let's say it was terror. They'd walk into this field of terror. They themselves would feel terror, which would re-imprint upon the terror. And then years, years after this would continually happening, you would get massively haunted places. And it's not that there was a ghost there. It was the imprint from these emotional experiences layered on top of each other. Like an energetic feedback loop kind of situation. That's interesting. What kind of, how would you get a stoned tape, like, player? What, 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 how do you play those messages back? Well, Lethbridge and then other researchers who kind of ran forward with that are, we're, we're actually kind of the players. We're the, we're the ones that see and experience the recording once it's imprinted in these locations. Mm. And if you talk to paranormal investigators and paranormal researchers, you will always hear them talking about, you know, the most allegedly haunted locations and hotspots are always like these giant old prisons or these giant old institutions or old houses, and they all have these enormous granite foundations, and they're usually set up near rivers and lakes. So there's this idea that there is this thing happening with that we don't quite understand in nature where we're all kind of imprinting on the world. Look at us bringing it back to water, huh? Look at that. How <laughs> I'm about a professional. That? Wow. This guy knows how to stay on thesis. Dude, when I knew we were having John on tonight, I had this image of like uh, the wild stallions, like when they call on Rufus, he's like, Jenny, <laughs> like, you know? like always coming in to like rescue any just straight theory or thought and just guide us right back on the path. I love it. Well, I want to I want to stay path adjacent and just get back to a moment to this haunted winery. Did any activity happen this past weekend? You were there that it was of note to you. Uh, not for me, for some of the guests, for sure. But being up in the cemetery, it's it's pretty quiet up there. It's hard to research because it, there's so much outside noise, so it contaminates a lot of the people doing EVP sessions. But yeah, every time people go there, they have ex- the first time I ever went there. It hadn't been done being um, reconstructed and put together, so I was spent the night alone there. The owner kind of gave me the keys and said, "You know, good luck." And I went out late at night to smoke a cigarette, and when I got past the second floor, I heard some like little footsteps running, and obviously I've done this long enough, it didn't really bother me, so then I went, after I was finished with my cigarette, back upstairs, and I stopped near where I had heard the footsteps, and I heard them again, and then I heard a, a voice, I couldn't tell if it was a little boy or girl, say, why is he awake? And then... In the morning when the owner came, I said, have there been kids in this building? And he said, oh, yeah, the second floor used to be an orphanage. <gasps> Whoa. <laughs> wow. That's. So I think I think the orphans who uh, were, you know, sneaking around being bad kids at night found me, the adult who was sneaking around being a bad guy, smoking my cigarettes. <laughs> I love wow. it. Yeah, that's great. I like you being quarantined out in the cool kids section, smoking in the cemetery. I often tell my kids, I'm like, hey. If if we do go to hell, listen, that's where all the cool people are anyway. So uh, you're going to have a good time. Don't worry about that. You know what? I'll tell you what. I mean, I don't think anybody should smoke, obviously. I, I wish I didn't. I've, I quit many times. But it, when I go to paranormal conventions and stuff, I will tell you, it really affords me an opportunity because I have to go somewhere usually by myself. There's not a lot of smokers. And uh, people who attend the conventions who feel nervous about talking 
in public about their paranormal stories will see me standing by myself. And it's really this kind of opportune moment for them to, you know, speak privately with me and tell me their stories and I can listen to them. And so I feel like it, it, it affords me this moment with, with guests and people who come to these events that I wouldn't get if I was just, you know, behind a table or hosting uh, mm-hmm. a ghost hunt yep. in a building. Love it. I still love the smell. Still love. That's how I met all my favorite actors was like they'd come out and have a cigarette after the plays I would see in New York. And that's when you always got a chance to talk to them. That's how I met Philip Seymour Hoffman. He borrowed a light for me so uh, he could have a cigarette. And that was back in my smoking day. So I got to have a smoke with him. Nowadays, I'll just, you know, maybe meet a fellow actor downstairs, have a a stick of gum and a non-alcoholic beer. And it get it's just (laughs) it's pretty much the same. It's the same exact thing. Same exact thing. <laughs> That's right, kids. That's right. Well, be, being in Los Angeles and having access to more actors and actresses and and people in the entertainment industry, can you guys break uh, the code of silence? There's like when I look online, I think there's still a lot of actors that smoke. I, yeah. you know, I will say I feel like less than there used to be for sure. But yeah, definitely. Because I think smoking is one of those things that, you know, when you're on set and also I think in rehearsal, like you get these five minute, 10 minute breaks when you're rehearsing plays and there's kind of only one thing you can do in that period and it's go have a cigarette. Kind of like it's a social activity. Um, and then with sets, you're waste, you know, you're sitting around waiting so much that I think a lot of people pick up smoking as a way to pass the time, you know, or at least mm. take advantage of all the waiting around, you know, to have a cigarette out by the trailers. But I've definitely seen a drop off, you know, than yeah. what it used to be 10, 20 years ago for sure. One of the things that I think is interesting when I film any kind of paranormal reality show or paranormal program is, you know, over the past 20 years now, I've been on television a countless amount of times, but, you know, they can't show, for whatever reason, they don't show me smoking, which is something that I do. And I've always thought it really strange that, like, they have no problem having someone explain that this person was decapitated and disemboweled and yeah. their bodies were dragged across the floor, but they can't show you smoking cigarettes, man. Yeah. They're required to put a content warning if there's smoking in the visual media. Now it's like, uh, it is treated as very, very taboo these days. I think it's making a comeback. <laughs> Unfortunately, the pandemic has definitely brought it back. That's for I, sure. I know we're supposed to talk about uh, water, but my last smoking story is <laughs> I was invited to the grand opening of Detroit's Satanic Temple a few years ago, and so I walked into <laughs> nice. well, I walked into the building and you know said hello to everyone that I knew, and there were some naked people getting Kool Aid poured on them to dubstep music and a whole bunch of nonsense going on. And I was leaned against the wall and I lit up a cigarette and this gentleman in a black robe came over to me and he said, you know, you can't smoke in here. (laughs) That's great. And I was like, this is the satanic temple of Detroit. And they were like, yeah, but it's against the law. Yeah, we have have to, you can't crush it out or you have to leave. So I got kicked out of the satanic temple for smoking. (laughs) That's amazing. Those robes go up pretty quick, you know, if they catch fire. Liberty also, if memory serves me, and maybe you know about this, John, I think Liberty is also the location of one of the gnome stories I've heard, that there was a gnome that uh, 
And my research, when we did our gnome stories, I think there was a farmhouse out in Liberty where these kids would see a gnome hanging outside in their uh, garden at night. Have you? Does this ring a bell at all? No, I've never heard that, but now I have to look into it for sure. Yeah, check it out. It's uh, I think it's a lesser known gnome story, but it is. It, it's, it's, <laughs> there. it's a lesser uh, gnome lesser story. Gnome. That's oh, going geez. on the song title. That's great. <laughs> uh, so, lesser John, talk story. to us a little bit about this connection between, you know, this has come up. We've 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 heard now doing this long enough that where there's rivers or ponds or lakes, there seems to be. Uh, an uptick in that area or a higher concentration of paranormal activity. And I didn't know, or Bigfoot sightings or UFO activity even. And I didn't know if there were, uh, what your thoughts were on that. And also if you had any cases or stories uh, where you felt like water sort of played a integral role or some sort of connection to the phenomenon that's taking place. For sure. I mean, I'm really biased in in this account in these accounts because, like Michigan, I'm from Michigan, right? So I'm surrounded on all sides by giant bodies of water, and Michigan has Bigfoot stories and haunted houses and UFO sightings, and of course every state does. But like the concentration of weirdness of stuff in Michigan, you know, Michigan has its own triangle, like the Bermuda Triangle. Like planes have disappeared, and we've never recovered any wreckage. We have lake monsters, and of recent, like I don't even know why I started thinking about this, but years ago in Michigan. They found uh, in the upper peninsula of Michigan, they found while doing core sample drillings, they found like a giant mushroom up in the upper peninsula. Hmm. And it actually matched uh, like my cellular network of a mushroom that was in the lower peninsula of Michigan. And they realized that Michigan has this hum- what they call the humongous fungus underneath it. No so way. Michigan has like a giant mushroom growing beneath the lakes and the state. Wow. And I, I I can't help but think that maybe everybody in Michigan, Chicago, and Wisconsin were all kind of microdosed. Wow, that Whoa. is so great. That is so great. I love that. Man, mush the the whole power of fungus thing is just so incredible. I remember uh one of my favorite stories of of Terrence McKenna psycho not was when he famously asked the mushroom, you know, why here? Why earth? And the mushroom responded, the rent is cheap. well what's crazy right is so like there are i think 20 or 30 of these humongous fungus spread out across the world always located near kind of large water tables but Mm. you know scientists are unsure like they could be connected to each other at an even deeper level and so you you know the whole planet we might all be microdosed i buy that it's so wild. If there's anything sort of extraterrestrial that's, you know, inhabiting the earth besides ourselves, it's it's the mushroom, man. It's it's such a strange and intoxicating thing and, you know, we don't know a lot about it. It still leaves a lot of mysteries, but um, you know, a lot of people felt that there was something to that plant consciousness that that perhaps there was a sentience there, an intelligence outside of our own that inhabited uh the vegetable matrix and especially the mushroom. Yeah, I think that I think that plants are super underestimated as a form of intelligence on this planet. I'm a mm-hmm. I'm a vegan, right? So I had a friend of mine who's a, a botanist. So you in, kill at UCL. all those plants. You eat all so, those strange life forms, John. I'm 
I'm trying to get to it. I called a botanist <laughs> friend of mine and I said, listen, man, you got to tell me it's okay to eat plants. Otherwise, I'm just going to starve to death over here. <laughs> <laughs> and he very calmly explained to me that, you know, that plants have been here way longer than we have. And they realized early on that they were non-locomotive. So they grew all of these delicious, gorgeous looking colored plants for us to eat so that we would eat them and move their seeds around for them. Mm -hmm. And we are completely under the control of plants. They absolutely want us to eat them. Yep. I love that idea. I've heard that before, too, that like plants grow to they've evolved to grow a crop that we love. And so that that guarantees their survival. And I I, I actually learned about that listening to a story about uh, marijuana, <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's mm -hmm. sort of like how how I think hemp evolved. It's like, yeah, there are all these plants that are like, yeah, we we really do. They really do form a symbiosis with us. And the thing with the giant mushroom, too, the thing that is, really compels me is if that thing is at the north and south of Michigan, then it's observing and communicating with itself yeah. over a large expanse. You know what I mean? So what sort of intelligence is it experiencing from the point of view from that sort of almost omnipresent point of view so that type of large-scale intelligence to bring it back to water is something that's always fascinated me since i was a kid because the only thing that we really know that talks over distances like that is whales like whale songs have are known and hypothesized to travel up to 10,000 miles underneath the water. Jeez. And so, you know, one, a whale in the Pacific can talk to a whale in the Atlantic and we don't know what they're saying. You know, they're, they're whale songs, the themes behind they're, they're called themes when they change pitch and tone, um, can go on for 30 minutes and we don't know what they're saying. And they contain like scientists have broken down those themes and, and the pitches and changes in tone and they've marked each change in tone as a word and in that 30 minutes there's more information contained within it than like in the mm. king james version of the bible so what are they Stang. talking to each other about? whoa wow wow man they're they're planning galactic takeovers that's in, that's insane um, yeah, and and we found out recently, like scientists, um, oceanographers, and 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 people who study cetaceans and and whales and psilopods uh, and stuff, they've actually realized that as we created because of boats and industry, as we've kind of created this underwater noise pollution, that whales have figured out how to negate that that noise pollution we've created to mm. be able to speak over or under it. So. Like they've f figured out our technology, you know, we've only been doing it for 60 years and they have already figured out how to get past it. That's incredible. Hey, I want to get your, I want to get your opinion on, on just the power of water. A, a, a book I read early on that always fascinated me and it's kind of held Oh boy, here me. we go. Mike, Michael, you ready for this? <laughs> yes. John, I want to, yes. I want to get your take on Masaru Emoto's New York Times bestselling book, The Hidden Messages in Water, and his ability to shape the crystalline structure of a water molecule by just meditating a, a pure thought or a, or a harmful thought or playing rock and roll versus classical. What's your thought on this idea that, that these water molecules can become amorphous and have a consciousness of their own that can obviously affect us because... Psh, we're almost all water anyway. 
Yeah, I mean, I love the theory because, you know, the way that I think, I, you know, obviously a lot of your listeners too, and like everything's connected, right? And so the planet is so much water and our bodies are so much water. Like obviously there has to be some kind of resonance or or even a way to perhaps the way we're talking about stone tape, like water tape theory, mm. right? Like yeah. somehow the information can be stored in them. And they're crystalline structures, again, like the granite crystalline structures, like they seem capable of holding information. But the fact that human beings have such a huge relationship to water and I know me personally, I've, I've loved swimming and I've loved the lakes since I was a kid. Like the first time I went in the ocean, I was probably about 10. My family went to Florida and I swam way out. It was probably too far for a 10 year old. And I remember holding my breath and going under the water and it was like this just immensely strange connection that I felt mm. like coming from the ocean, like almost that I felt like I was home and that there mm. was some kind of what you were just saying. Like there was almost some kind of like resonant memory in it. Like I can remember that feeling now, you know, at 51. I, I, wow. I feel like they, and, and not to sort of belittle your experience. I feel like they captured what you experienced at the end of splash. When Tom Hanks goes, with, <laughs> <laughs> that, I, that same thing. movie that yeah. movie touched me at that end i was like okay he's gonna be okay underwater he even though he has to like learn to be a fish man he's gonna do it and it's okay i fucking love that <laughs> well you know there is also i think it's um alistair hardy who was a marine biologist in the 1940s and 50s he was one of the first people to propose that you know there was also an aquatic ape theory yep yep, yep. oh wow was, yeah, that we evolved from apes that swam and, and ate fish. It's one of the reasons we have blubber like like seals and, and like yeah. whales. And so, you know, that there's this whole separate, almost potentially separate species that that is, you know, water born and water lives, but are still mammals. Wow. Yeah. So it's like underwater Bigfoot. How awesome is that? Extremely awesome. It's extremely awesome. And I think there's some I I, you know, I, I've only scratched the surface of, of of those theories, but I think there's some validity to it. I mean, it's pretty interesting. You were saying, right? I mean, there's, I don't know, man. There, there yes, does no, seem to Bryce, be. I've just, you know me. I just enjoy your enthusiasm. That's all. I'm charmed by it, and I love it. That's all. I don't oh mean to condescend. God. I'm not making no, fun of you. Oh, I just, not at all. I love not that you're all. like. I barely scratched the surface, and I'm already on board. That's my favorite thing about you. <laughs> <laughs> That's let's, all it takes, let's do man. this. Let's take a quick break. We got to take a break. When we come back, let's get into some uh, cases or stories of high strangeness uh, that involve some sort of phenomenon and, and a connection to water. All right. Well, we're back here with John E.L. Tenney. And John, let's get into some stories of, uh, of high strangeness or cases that either you've been involved with personally, we love those, or just stories that you remember, uh, cases from the past that uh, have stood out to you where water played some sort of curious part in it. Yeah, for sure. Well, like I was saying, you know, coming from Michigan, uh, Michigan itself, the name is derived. It's uh, an original inhabitants of this of this area. Uh, it means the god of the lakes, and like we have Mackinac Island, which is the turtle god. And as long as I can remember, people see 
what they think is a lake monster, but it's actually in the Detroit River. Mm. And we have we have lake monsters, quote unquote, all over the state. The thing with me as I got older is I also realized we have giants we have giant sturgeon in our lake. So mm. I'm not sure if people are prepared who have never seen an eight foot long, 300 pound fish before to know that that's a normal thing for a fish. But I get reports all the time of people seeing Moto, which is the the monster in the Detroit River. Wow. Uh, people constantly are telling me they see giant lake monsters, but I'm probably pretty sure that's a it's giant sturgeon. There was uh so I went to you know this uh, we've spoken about it before, but I went to high school up at Interlock and Arts Academy, and in between two lakes, and of course on one of the lake, um, Green Lake, there was the we had a, a ghost of a haunted girl, a, a ghost of a little girl that haunted a theater, uh, who supposedly drowned in that lake. Her name was Lois Gruno, and then on the other lake across the highway, where in the summertime the boys' camp was. I was there during the school year. There was a duck lake, and apparently there was some sort of duck lake monster over there that I always pictured as being some sort of swamp creature. Uh, but I think he was more active in the summertime. But I love the idea that even the small lakes in Michigan, the two small lakes that I was closest to, had a ghost and a cryptid associated with it. Absolutely. And Michigan is full of swamps. And so that's where we get all of our Bigfoot stories from. You know, my parents have a cabin in northern Michigan and there's a a swamp in the background and all the people have seen Bigfoot there. And even the largest UFO sighting that's happened in the United States, which was in 1966, is the sw- is called the Swamp Gas Incident because it happened over Frank Manor's farm, which is right near a giant swamp, you know. And Let's talk about some- that. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, 1966, this farmer and his son see something rising up out of the out of the swamp or in some other cases descending down into it. Police officers are called. The police officers see it over the course of the next four or five days. Literally thousands of people see this object floating around Dexter Hillsdale area of Michigan. It's chased by the police. It's so intense that at the time, our congressman, Gerald Ford, goes to the floor of the House and calls for investigations into UFOs. And again, like water is involved, right? That's the blue book comes out. They tell J. Allen Hynek to investigate it. And he is really at odds as what to say. And the government tells him, just say it's swamp gas. And so he says it's swamp gas and is ridiculed. And obviously, that ridicule is part of why J. Allen Hynek eventually forms the setter for ufo studies and becomes a believer in ufos was there wasn't there a scientist who was like spewing swamp gas as an excuse as well or am i i feel like they had a guy who they would bring out to be like it's just swamp gas that that was heineck for sure he was was the scientist he was the scientist working for blue book at the time and you know he comes on Michigan television at the time. And, you know, obviously the press is kind of on fire because you have police officers and thousands of people across the state who have witnessed this thing. And he really was like in this weird situation, you can't just go and say, you know, we've, we've spent all this time studying and looking at it and we still don't know what it is. Like they, they thought it would cause panic. And so, you know, the only kind of answer he gives is, well, we think it was probably swamp gas and, you know, methane gases that were illuminated and created a giant ball, which of course sent a fury across Michigan because everybody that lives in Michigan lives near a swamp and nobody's ever seen swamp gas before. (laughs) <laughs> right yeah what the fuck is swamp gas by yeah, the way i've always wondered that what is swamp gas actually 
yeah, it's just supposed to be like a carbon or methane buildup. And, you know, due to the uh, static electricity in the air, it ignites, becomes like a plasma ball. And I mean, yeah, that's a scientific explanation for it, but it's so uncommon, it's almost as nonsensical as saying it's a UFO. Huh. Mm-hmm. Sort of the same thing happened again with the Phoenix Lights when uh, I forget the name of the, the the governor who came out and he he made a joke of it. It's sort of the same thing of saying swamp gas, but the thousands of eyewitnesses who experienced the Phoenix Lights were livid, you know, because and and this is how you start chipping away at uh, at the people who are disseminating information. You're like, you know, if you're not going to take an incident like this seriously, where thousands of us saw it, even uh, Fife Symington, I think was his Fife name, Symington, even he yeah. saw it. Yeah, even he saw it himself. But uh, yeah, that's interesting how that sort of incident repeated itself uh, with that famous swamp gas thing. And um, yeah, that's wild. And I think that, you know, the other thing that Five Symington that was just ridiculous, you know, during the press conference, he brings out a guy in an alien suit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Handcuffed. Yeah. And, you know, this is this is to the same thing of what somebody who is sees a Bigfoot cross road, why they're not going to report it because they're afraid of ridicule, you know, and, and, and it's and it's stunts like that, that, you know, don't give people a comfortable space to come forward with their experience, you know, and when people do, uh, it, it shows a sign of trust, whether they're emailing us or telling you. And uh, but man, it, it, it's a shame. It's, it's stuff like that that keeps these stories of high strangeness at bay. Yeah, there's a documentary that was made back, I think, in 67 about it was made by CBS. It's hosted by Walter Cronkite and it's called UFOs, Friends or Foe. And they actually talked to Frank Manor, the the first guy in Michigan to see this thing in 1966. And, you know, he's on camera and it's this really kind of intense footage where he says, you know, people, have you know, broken the window of my car. They've spray painted my house. Yep. Uh, I, I would never tell anybody if I saw something like this, I would never, never, ever do it again. Yeah. Yeah. Look at what happened to the, the family in Hopkinsville. As soon as word got out that little green goblins had invaded their space, the whole town descended on the community and ransacked their home, took pictures inside their house, basically, you know, made their place unlivable. As a matter of fact, they had to sell within two weeks because it was just had become this unlivable place where people look or lose were coming around. And, and it was all sort of to laugh at, to poke fun at this family who had experienced this incredible incident. Well, it's an interesting point about that too, is when UFOs really kicked into the kind of forefront of Americana, it's probably in the mid fifties because the science fiction genre was really taking off in movies and films. But you know, that what people don't realize is, you know, there's this trope of like, uh, the, the, the family out in the woods or the farmer who saw a UFO and, you know, he is kind of simple minded. So they probably don't know what they saw like that trope of idea, but people don't realize that, you know, the, uh, the FAA had rules against pilots talking about if they had seen UFOs. If you were a police mm. officer, you couldn't talk about seeing UFOs. If you worked for the government, you couldn't talk about seeing UFOs. And so the only people that were allowed to be on television were normal, everyday people. And that built <laughs> up this idea in the general population's mind that, oh, only uneducated people are seeing UFOs. 
Right. Mm. Right. Right. Non-credible witnesses. And I would imagine, even though we all know plenty of high strangeness happens in urban areas, you got to think, like, if you live out in a rural area, you got a better eyeline to some of this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. I mean, I, I get reports from rural areas more than I get them from downtown Detroit, but I do get them from downtown Detroit. It's just the other thing is, too, is there's so much distraction going on in the city. And like you said, the eye line, being able to see the horizon and see off in mm-hmm. the distance and there's no light pollution. So, I mean, it's there, but it's it's far more feasible that you're going to see something in the wilderness or in a farmer's field. Hmm. The um, triangle that you mentioned, sort of like the Bridgewater Triangle of of Michigan or the Bermuda Triangle of Michigan, what what is that called and what what areas does it triangulate? It's it's really weird. It's it's almost like the Bermuda Triangle in the sense that, you know, sometimes like the Bermuda Triangle includes Bermuda, but then sometimes it doesn't. And <laughs> it depends on where the researcher is drawing the line. So the the Great Lakes Triangle, as, as we call it, uh, it moves to I've always considered it to be, you know, if you look at the state of Michigan as that mitten shape that it looks like on the map, that it's a triangle yep. that goes from side to side all the way up to Lake Superior. So it just covers the whole state and all of the lakes. And, you know, we have like, uh, I think it was uh, Northwest Orient Flight 2501, I think that's it, which was a DC-4 and had 55 people on it. It left Detroit. Uh, it checked in as it started to fly over Lake Michigan, and then it just never showed up in Chicago. And we've never found any wreckage and no survivors. It's just gone. Whoa. When was that? I think that was in 1950, June, June 23rd, 1950. Whoa. Wow. Have you ever seen that video of, uh, of, of, of this video of a, it was taken by a pilot in his cockpit and there's a, there's a tarmac and it has windows. There's no plane on the, uh, on uh, what is, what do you call it? The, the thing that you move from the plane to the gate. Um, anyway, but he sees these ghosts, like these traveling ghosts, like they were passengers getting off a plane. Have you ever seen that video? I haven't. I will look it up though, for sure. Oh yeah. yeah. It's, re- it's really great. I don't know where I saw it. Probably paranormal caught on camera. I have a like feeling that. you saw that on, but paranormal it's a great video. It's a great video. <laughs> mm-hmm. Check it out. This pilot <laughs> takes it and it's all these like passengers and they're just, there's sort of these ghostly images and I don't know, it's a great video, but yeah, I mean, you know, there's a, actually a company in Michigan for the, that flight I was talking about, the Michigan shipwreck research associates, MSRA. Uh, and every year they're a nonprofit every year, like they put together a search team to continue to go out and look for it. This is crazy. I have never heard of this. I'm Googling it now. And it really is the, I, it isn't over any land. It's over the lake itself. Yeah. Um, there's a book here called gateway to oblivion, uh, by Hugh Cochrane, <laughs> Which is maybe the best title Bob, of a book. Sorry, and, and author. Go on. <laughs> oh, Hugh. Um, but yeah, I never heard of this story. Do, are there do do are are there UFOs reported in this triangle as well? Oh yeah, for sure, absolutely. Um, so I think it was in two thousand. I up near Traverse City, Michigan. Uh, I got a, a message from, I'm trying to think if I got a phone call. I think it was, this is long enough to go to where someone left a message on my answering machine. And it basically said, hello, Mr. Tenney. I live in Traverse City, Michigan. Last night, the police chased a UFO for 45 minutes. What do you know about that? And so I called the gentleman back. I said, I don't know anything because I live in 
Detroit, which is, mm-hmm. you know, five hours away from you. So I reached out to the Traverse City Police. They said that absolutely 100% they had not chased a UFO. I filed a couple of Freedom of Information Act requests. Uh, they all were returned saying, we don't have any information what you were talking about. I called that gentleman back and said, you know, I don't, I can't find any information. And he was livid because he knew that he heard on his police scanner, these police chasing a UFO. Oh, wow. And about four, about four months later, I got like the craziest X-Files, like government secret. Like I got a manila envelope delivered to my house with no return address. (laughs) And inside of it was a cassette tape from the police dispatch in Traverse City and contained about 45 minutes of the police in Traverse City chasing a UFO over the lake. Wow. Now, who do you think left that tape for you? I mean, I had filed enough Freedom of Information Act requests and talked to enough police officers uh, over the phone in the in that office that they knew that I was looking for something. And I had left yeah. my contact information with all of them. So I don't know who gave it to me. But in that envelope, it said, this is the recording you're looking for. The original has already been destroyed. Man, that's haunting. That's got to be a police officer that was like pissed that they couldn't report it or talk about it. Don't you think that sounds like some of these pilots that have seen this stuff that finally were fed up that they had nowhere to talk about this. Yeah, for sure. And you know, the, if you listen to the beginning of the tape, it's, it's a, I, I have it uploaded on my YouTube channel. It's clipped down to a few minutes cause there's a lot of gaps while they spark back and forth between them. But you know, it starts off with a, a, one a single police officer saying, does anybody see this in the sky? And they go through, is it a helicopter? Is it a fireball? Is it a comet? And then some other people get on the line and then other officers start chasing it. Then other officers see it. And at the very end of the tape, I think the like Lieutenant shows up and the tape goes dead for about 10 minutes. And then the original reporting officer comes on and he says, uh, forget what I was talking about. It, it's just a star. <laughs> <laughs> So any details of the of the craft itself that that you can recall Uh, bright white light moving back and forth in the sky, uh, you know, traveling pretty vast distances. If you're if you're listening to the tape and where the officers are located because they give their locations, you know, where they're seeing it from. And uh, so it's moving between some some pretty decent distances pretty quickly. Uh, but they all just reported it as like a singular super bright light in the sky moving back and forth. That's crazy. And of course, the bay is right there in Traverse City as well. Yeah. Right on the water. Absolutely. Well, where's that link? I'll put it up in our show notes so people can can listen to it. Yeah, I'll, I'll send you a link to it. Okay, great. We'll throw that up in the show notes if you guys are listening. And then what I was going to say, too, when we were talking about that uh, plane that disappeared over in 1950. So three years later is when you have the Kinross incident in Lake Superior which is a UFO incident where a UFO is spotted on radar by Kinross Air Force Base in the Upper Peninsula. So they scramble a jet plane to go and check it out because it's the height of the Cold War and you can't have an unidentified object flying into American airspace. They scramble this plane. It gets in the air. They watch the jet that they've scrambled approaching the unidentified object on radar. They see the two objects merge on the radar and then they see both objects vanish on the radar what they immediately they immediately scramble two more planes put them up in the air there's never any wreckage the guys in the plane are never found what wow the guy so the planes the planes themselves was the planes merged 
on the radar? So on the radar, because you know, they're watching the radar scope. So, I mean, they could have been above or below each other, but, yeah. you know, because you're just watching a flat radar screen, but you're, you're seeing the two uh, returns, the two radar returns getting closer and closer as the jet closes in on the unidentified object. And then eventually they overlap, so they become one. And then the image of, of just vanishes off the radar screen. If if you had to postulate, John, what do you, what do you what do you, what do you make of that? What do you what do you think is going on there? You know, it's crazy. I spent when I found out. I I have a lot of ideas. I mean, everything <laughs> as simple as I, I spent a lot of time with this case. Let me just back this up. So when I came into this case, when I first started reading about it in books, I was probably seventeen or eighteen. The Ken and Ross case. The Ken, the Ken Ross case. Okay, and. Uh, one of the things that drove me really crazy was that the, the guys on the plane, Felix Moncla, uh, was the pilot on the plane. Uh, but Robert, who was on the plane, uh, people kept spelling his name wrong and it made me super mad. So I got really interested in this case because I was like, the least a researcher can do is spell the guy's name right. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I spent about 10 years trying to get documents from the government about what happened to this and at the time i started there were only i think 50 pages released from the kinross investigation i was like there's got to be more than that like this is the disappearance of an american jet fighter and two pilots in 1953 like there's got to be more than 50 documents so i found out that there were like 500 documents and i spent like 10 years and eventually kind of tricked the government into giving me those 500 documents (laughs) (laughs) How? How did you do that? Did you dress up as like a uh, like like a Miss America pageant contestant and stroll into the office Bugs Bunny style and distract everybody? Uh, it was a little more. So I had been writing Freedom of Information Act requests and and they had been denying them for many years, and eventually I I got this weird idea into my head. Like I was so mad with how the government was treating me that uh, I wrote a FOIA request for all documents. Uh, about the Kinross incident, and I sent the FOIA request to the Department of Energy, which has nothing to do with Kinross. Oh, wow. And I, I got their FOIA officer on the phone, and, and she said, you know, we don't have any documents. We're not involved in this. And I said, oh, I have a, a document that mentions you, so you should have a copy of this. And so she said, well, let me check into it, and I'll get back to you. So a couple weeks go by. She calls me back, and she says, listen, she goes, um, you know, I've talked to the Department of Defense, and I ordered copies of their uh, documents. She's like, and I'm sitting in front of a stack of 500 pages is sitting in front of me. I've been through every single one of them, and the Department of Energy isn't named in any of these files. <laughs> she's like, she's like, I don't have anything to send you. And I said, no, you need to read my FOIA request because it requests any documents you may currently or in the future be possession of. And you just told me that you have 500 documents in front of you. So, so good. So good. Uh, nice. Yeah. So, Checkmate. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So four days later, I got 500 documents, and she's like, "All right, if this you- bitch wants them, I'm going to send every goddamn last one of these." <laughs> you want the censored one too? <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you what. Over 10 years of researching the case, like I got to a point where I was like, "Okay, 
I even had gone into researching the plane, which was an F-89C Scorpion, and I learned all about, like, aerial elasticity of wings and the underscoop air. Like, I knew the plane inside out, and, and I had gotten to this point after 10 years where I was like, okay, it was cold out. This plane has a problem with icing. It probably didn't uh, come in contact with the UFO. It probably went into Lake Superior, and it hit so fast it just disintegrated. Like, that's mm-hmm. where I had gotten. But mm-hmm. then I got these 500 pages of documents, and... In that is court testimony from the other pilots who were scrambled to go and look for the first disappeared plane. Mm. And they got up in the air and into the area like 25 minutes after the radar return vanished. And they could hear the original plane still on the radio asking for help. Whoa. Whoa. I'm surprised this isn't better known. This is, I mean, I'll be honest with you guys. We did the disappearance of Flight 19. This is way more exciting. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'll tell you those missing missing pilots. (laughs) Right, of course. I'll tell you one of the really great things that came out of that case, aside from just having a bunch of weird files in my house and knowing some weird stuff about that Kinross case, is the family, uh, Felix, the pilot of the plane, Felix Moncla Jr., Gene, uh, his wife and children were still alive when I was researching this stuff. You know, it was 53, and so the you know the kids were relatively yeah. still young, and the wife was older. But because they had never been classified as, like, missing in action or dead, the family had never received any military benefits. Wow. So once the documents were released and we could get them classified, you know, as at least missing in action, the family got all of their back benefits. So now if you go down to, if you go down to new Orleans, where Felix is from, where they have a monument to him, there's a a gravestone that says, you know, in honor of Felix Moncla jr. And Robert Wilson, who died defending the United States against flying saucers. Whoa. That's awesome. Also doing great work while uncovering (laughs) the UFO phenomenon. That's incredible. By the way, where do you keep all your files? Do you have like a really cool file cabinet room? Have you like, I do have a really cool file cabinet room. All right. Let's take a minute. Let's hear about it. We got to hear about it. I want John to hear about this file cabinet room. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) No, go ahead. Bryce. What do you want? (laughs) Oh, I was just going to say, I was like, I'd like to become like, legit i'd love to like one day have john like walk us through filing a foia you know what i mean i think i feel like before bcc is said and done we should all at least once file a foia i back okay. that yeah let's do it listen yeah. i i tell everybody at all of my lectures that like foia like it's we it's ta- it's everything that all the paperwork the government has is paid for with taxpayer money like it's ours right. like if right. you want it ask right. for it you know the problem is with foia and the way it's become there's so much legalese and government speak. So my a mentor of mine, Craig and I, we spent probably 11 years learning how to write the correct way to submit a FOIA because if you don't ask them specifically for what you want, they're not going to look for it. So mm. if you just send a letter to the government that says, please send me everything you have about UFOs, the government will send you back a letter that says, like, we have 5.6 million pages of documents on UFOs at five right. cents a copy at five cents a copy. How many do you want? Which ones do you want? So you have to be oh really specific. Or if you ask for something in not the right way. So like my FOIA request uses some of that government speak and legalese to find you stuff like the government, especially the department of defense department of defense has a filing system called do not file files. And so, like, in your FOIA request, you have to ask, like, I also want you to search do not file files. And if you don't ask for that, they don't. 
That's amazing. Uh, That's amazing. Man, the wealth of knowledge. It's incredible. This is this is like a Patreon episode. We'll have how to file a FOIA with John Hill Denny. <laughs> Patreon. Well, it's, a freaking, episode. it's an online class. Are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah. But you know, it's great. It's not only great for UFOs, it's great. I tell God, the reason one of the reasons I talk about this at my lectures is because I tell it to ghost hunters. You know, you can file a FOIA request with the state police or the local police about an address. So you can mm. find out every time the police have been called to an address, if the place has ever caught on fire, if there's ever been a murder in a location. Like even if you buy a house, you should file a FOIA request on the house before you buy the house because you can find out if the house has been burnt down and, you know, sloppily rebuilt. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Guys. Come for the UFO and Water High Strange to stay for the FOIA knowledge. <laughs> this is stuff that you can actually use. That's the benefit of BCC. John, um, we got to wrap up here in, in a few minutes, but any other stories from this, uh, the, the what, what was it, the Great Lake Triangle? What was it? Great Lakes Triangle. Yeah. Um, you know, we do, we have just a ton of I, endless reports of UFOs going in and out of the lakes, uh, in my case files upstairs in that, in that file cabinet room. I can't tell you how many people have seen UFOs or USOs plunging out of Lake Huron and Lake Michigan and Lake Superior and then, you know, di or diving back into them. It's, it's really endless or people seeing lights moving beneath the water. So I really do feel like you know, and obviously I'm sure you guys have talked about this, like the water is a great place to hide if you're a UFO. Yeah. Oh yeah, totally. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's, I, I, I mean, do you, do you subscribe to the idea that maybe that's where these things are from? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, if you're going to, your vehicle already traverses, you know, the, the inky blackness of infinitude through space. Like if you get here, what what other you can hide underwater you know obviously you don't need air and you're not worried about pressure changes so just dip below 80 percent of the planet somewhere where we can't go and do whatever you need to do or you know as a as a kid i'm sure we all you know were interested and and mesmerized by legends of atlantis and the fact mm -hmm. that there you know are these ancient ancient folklores and mythologies about advanced civilizations underneath the water and uh, you have to wonder like where does that spark from where does that come from did those aquatic apes go down there and start building buildings what's going on i mean seriously absolutely um <laughs> i have one i have sort of one question i you know you've been doing this for so long you must go sort of in and out of rabbit holes and and uh, I, I guess i'm I'm curious, what really excites you today in, in the world of the paranormal or the mystical or the occult or what's really, you know, caught your attention as of late? You know, I, it's really strange for me because you would think that after all this time, hearing someone's personal ghost story, like it would just be kind of boring to me, but there is really, as I get older and I start to really key in on my kind of bullshit detector. And when, when just having someone sit across from me 
and very honestly and earnestly and openly telling me a story about, you know, it happened at Liberty, Missouri, you know, a woman mm-hmm. telling me about the, the fairies that she grew up with and listening to this modern day story of the fae and the fae folk and watching like tears well up in her eyes when she was talking about how much it meant to her. And like, like that stuff is so exciting to me all these years later. Can, can, do you feel comfortable sharing some of what she told you? Uh, I wouldn't just because I don't without people's permission. Yeah. yeah, fair enough. That's why I ask. That's fascinating. I mean, it, it it must be cool to be working in this field for so long and still not only hear stories that surprise you, but also feel so emotionally connected because I, I do think that's the thing that a lot of people take for granted is the emotional impact that these encounters have with you, you know? Um, obviously when it comes to something like ghosts or getting messages from beyond so often those feel connected to, uh, loved ones or just the terror as you described from experiencing something, uh, unknown, um, or the, 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 the backlash that happens and how that makes you feel, you know, as was the case with, uh, with the, um, foster, what was that his name? The, the farmer, who, who oh, Manor, saw Frank Manor. Yeah. Manor, thank you. Um, yeah, I think I mean, that's... I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I mean, no. you know, one, one of the things that I tell, and I probably said it on, on here before, and you guys are actually doing it, you're a part of it. Like, when we tell stories, we're a part of it. I tell people all the time at my lectures, if there's no such thing as ghosts, if there's no such thing as Bigfoot, if there really is no such thing as UFOs, if all of that stuff is only and only a mechanism for us to have conversations about how we think and feel about our place in the universe, then it, they're still vastly important. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, I yeah. Cause that. I, I think that's the thing about these conversations that we've been having since the start of the show. You know, I think it does give an opportunity obviously for us, for you and for our listeners to like stop the constant conversation that is going on the, uh, about the modern world and stress and everything uh, relationships, work, whatever, politics, news, and really stop. And I think these things do make us think outside of the box, you know, that for lack of a better term, they kind of make us stop and have conversations that we wouldn't normally have, um, uh, with, uh, unless well, you're <laughs> running into, you know, the four of us are running into each other at a, over, a uh, an hors d'oeuvres table at somebody's party. And we're like, thank God I can talk about UFOs with somebody here, you know, for sure. And you know, the world we live in can sometimes be colored in a lot of very off-putting shades and hues. And I feel like ghosts and UFOs and Bigfoot and aquatic apes and Atlantis and all of that stuff, you know, adds some color to our lives sometimes. Yeah, I agree. And you know what? And I, I, I'm just one final thought. I, I, I loved the verbiage you used. Uh, mechanisms set in place to sort of ask these questions, and and perhaps you know us as a human species have created these mechanisms ourselves, so that we can in fact you know converse with ourselves, asking who am I? You know what I mean by dealing with these archetypes of the wild man of the woods and these skinny gray aliens of the future. And, uh, you know, perhaps it's us creating this stuff so that we can have this dialogue about who we are, where we come from, and where we're going. Absolutely. And you know what? Any reason to have a deep connection with someone is invaluable at this point. That's all we need. Um, 
Okay, so for listeners who are following along with us in a jet ski, uh, BCC's jet ski summer, if you could sort of say, here's what I think the connection between high strangeness and water might be, uh, what, what's, your, what's your thought on that? Oh, geez. Is it a I mean, conduit? Is it, I've always thought, is it a, for, for the paranormal specifically, is it a, is, I, does it channel another dimension somehow? <laughs> I, I really do kind of sometimes feel like that, right? Uh-huh. Like we are so connected to it and it is so much of us. It feels like the perfect medium to use to communicate these strange ideas. And, you know, this folklore, these mythology, these stories we tell each other, we often use the word about how they are fluid. And mm. I don't think that that's a mistake, right? Like, I think that we are this ever-shaped, ever-changed thing. And the water that's in my body right now has been on this planet for millions of years. So who knows what it has seen and done? I love that. Uh, John E.L. Tenney, where can people find you and your work? All of my social media, Twitter, Instagram, all that is John E.L. Tenney. My website is weirdlectures.com. And once a week, I do a pretty silly podcast with my friend Jessica called What's Up Weirdo. And that's available <laughs> wherever you put podcasts in your ear holes. Guys, <laughs> subscribe to it. Put it on your list. What are you doing? You got to listen to it. Um, well, thank you so much, John, for being on the show. We we love you. It wouldn't be summer here in the clubhouse without a visit here, from here. John Tenney. Uh, mm-hmm. Come back again, please, anytime. We'd love to have you. Thanks for having me. It's been a blast. Great. Riley, before we go, do you have anything to plug? I mean, I just want to just bring up the ultra terrestrial tier of the Patreon one more time. It's, uh, I mean, if you're if you're not already a Patreon member... The whole thing truly is excellent. It's five bucks a month. If you're feeling saucy for nine bucks a month, you get this extra tier, which includes uh, scores from the show. There's already a back catalog developing. You can download them all and put them into your music library. It's hours already of ambient Guys, music. Hours, um, hours of hours, awesome a- ambient soundscapes from Riley. You must, guys. Honestly, you must do it. <laughs> it's fantastic. And even, if, even if you want to just jump on for a month, just nine bucks, you download the catalog, dip back out. You can come back again later. I don't care. I just want you guys to have the music. I've I've wanted to do this for a long time since we've been making the show because I've done like between the main feed and the Patreon, I've done something like 300 maybe 400 scores and so it's nice to finally have an outlet for them but i'm also i'm dropping demos from a record i'm working on we're dropping songs from the show like bj and the shadow bats tunes and club bryce tunes uh, i'm also writing these little rambling letters about life and love and the apocalypse and everything in between <laughs> and also music theory and <laughs> history <laughs> i don't know some of that is on my mind yeah. that week really uh, but it's uh, it's it's a fun little corner of the show, and if if you're if you're interested, I I would really recommend you check it out. Yeah, I agree, Bryce. What do you got? Nope, I'm good. <laughs> all right, well, I'll plug for you. Um, how about check out all of season three of Expedition Bigfoot, which is on Discovery Plus right now, hosted by our boy uh, Bryce. O. Johnson. And a mm-hmm. reminder that Bryce got the BCC boys on Cameo, so you can download the app and look for us individually if you want uh, us to say hello, uh, hi, or hello Hi-hi. to you, or hello <laughs> to you, or love to one. That's why Bigfoot says hello. Did you know that? Hello. <laughs> um, 
I, 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 I signed up for it wrong, but now I'm on it. So you can find me there as well. Um, as for me, season one of Slate, your name is available wherever you get your podcasts. Get caught up on that before the sea of uh, the series returns in the fall. And of course, if you need an acting or audition coach, you can book my services at bookitwithmikeygmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at Bigfoot Collectors Club. I'm McMills. Bryce is Mr. Bryce Johnson. And Riley is at Peace Drone. We want to thank John one last time for joining us. Thank you, John. Yes. Yes. Thank you, John. I said before that it was a blast. I was I, I missed it, right? Like I should have said it's been a splash. <laughs> oh, there you go. There nice. All right, Bryce. Nice. I mean, we there you go. All right, everybody. Until next time, good night. And go get regressed. There it is. Oh man. Thank you, John, for putting up with us, man. Hey, no problem. I have two things before I go, real yeah. quick. Yeah. One, Bryce. I hope that there's going to be an aquatic ape coming up soon on Expedition Bigfoot. Oh, my God. That would be amazing. Better go get it. Want to see you scuba diving. Yes. <laughs> oh, yes. Was, I want John, to see Bryce scuba. John, did that, you see the episode where he found some sort of witchy totem underwater with a with a uh, some sort of underwater scuba camera? I don't think I saw that one. It's it's weird. He found like a weird witchy totem that he left. I mean, we're all upset with him that he left it under the water, but you know, he didn't want to get wet, which is fine. But, but uh, also we'll it's see. probably best best practices if it probably was a witchy totem yeah. left where leave it there. Yeah. Uh, We've all yeah. seen Blair Witch and how it ends. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then the other thing is Riley, I don't know if you know this, but I have a band camp where I have two soundtracks that I did. What? That are I didn't all, know that. That are all kind of um, weird, ambient, industrial, discordant music. And like the one of them is based on Joe Simonton's Pancake Experience. And the other one oh, is on. uh, based on Ted Sirios, who did thought, Thoughtography. Oh, amazing. What is the, what's the name of the band? It was just under your I, name? or I think it's just Bandcamp, Johnny Elteni, you know, whatever. Oh, well, I can't wait to Well, I think we got to leave this in. We got to leave this in so everybody can hear oh, yeah. it. <laughs> I actually forgot to push stop, so we are still rolling. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Well, Look at that. Uh, there you go. All right, everybody. We'll see you next week. Good night. Good night. Bigfoot Collectors Club is produced by Riley Bray and Michael McMillan and scored and engineered by Riley Bray. Our theme song, Come Alone, is by Sun Eaters, courtesy of Lotus Pool Records. Do us a favor and support the show and unlock three bonus episodes every month by becoming a member of our Patreon, BCC The Other Side, which can be found at patreon.com slash Bigfoot Collectors Club. Hey guys, Heather Ashley here, host of the Big Mad True Crime Podcast. If you're looking for a true crime podcast with all of the details and none of the small talk, you have found your people. Each week, we dive deep into a new case and learn everything there is to know, from getting to know the victim and the impact their cases had on those around them, to the investigation into what happened to them and who is or might be responsible. And if the bad guy looks like he might drink whiskey by a dumpster or has the social skills of an ogre, we say it because we were all thinking it anyway. As the name suggests, we get big mad over true crime, and I would love to have you join our incredible community of listeners with big hearts and zero time for small talk. 
Subscribe to Big Mad True Crime anywhere you listen to podcasts and listen to new episodes every single Monday. Hey, this is Eric Malinsky, host of the podcast Imaginary Worlds. Each episode, I explore different sci-fi fantasy genres, talking with filmmakers, novelists, game designers, cosplayers, comic book artists, and anyone who works in the field of make-believe. I also look at the fan experience, asking, why do we suspend our disbelief? You can subscribe to Imaginary Worlds wherever you get your podcasts.